I was invited to speak on aeroelasticity and flutter. It was a, a title that um, I, I, I just took as a, a general invitation, and I said I would uh, talk on something related to this. But thinking about it uh, during the summer, I decided that I was really only competent to speak of the early days, and uh, that, that was probably what the historical group wanted anyway. So um, my title is, in fact, The First 50 Years of Aeroelasticity. Uh, if I've brought anyone here under the mistaken impression that they're going to hear anything about the last 27 years, we'll have a decent pause while they go. Well, now, before I speak of the history of aeroelasticity, I ought to define it. It's the science which treats of the interaction of aerodynamic, elastic, and inertia, including gravitational forces. In its simplest form, if an increase in aerodynamic load distorts a structure in such a manner that the incidence changes and increases the aerodynamic load further, we have an aeroelastic problem. The name aeroelasticity was proposed by Roxby Cox and Pugsley in the early 1930s. It paralleled that of the photoelasticity phenomenon discussed by Coker and Phylon, which was much in vogue at that time. Although the name aeroelasticity is deficient in that it uh, carries no implication of inertia loads, it's nevertheless compendious and convenient and is well established in the literature. I've chosen to speak of the history of the subject over the first half of this century. This was the period when it had an aura of black magic about it with a small number of initiates only, research workers all. But by 1950... The aviation industry had realized that aeroelasticity must be treated as a routine aspect of aircraft design and recruited the staff and obtained the equipment needed for the purpose. This then marked the end of an era and so seemed a suitable endpoint for this talk. Since I'm to cover half a century, it is worth noting here that this year is the centenary of the appearance in 1877 of the Adams Prize essay of E.J. Routh on the stability of motion, in which he enunciated the necessary criteria for stability, which have been such powerful tools in the solution of all aircraft stability problems, including those of aeroelasticity. Now, I'm going to deal with the subject in five successive decades. It seems to break down quite nicely that way. So I'm going to begin with the first decade, starting... 1900. Perhaps surprisingly, aeroelasticity is older than powered flight itself. As is well known, for two or three years before they achieved powered flight in December 1903, the brothers Wright were experimenting with man-carrying gliders. Um, I'd like you to look at the, um, the, the bottom two pictures here. The left-hand one there is um, the kite, uh, the glider that they were flying as a kite in 1900. And um, I think you'll see that it's fairly clearly got um, a main supporting wire and some sort of control wire running across it, which I think must mean that they were, even at that time, uh, using um, warping as a means of lateral control. They had observed how birds achieve lateral control in flight, and so they chose to use wing warping for the same purpose. In other words, to make deliberate use of the aeroelastic properties of a wing. Having achieved success, 
they incorporated the principle in the Wright Flyer of 1903. This is the uh, very well-known picture, of course, of that uh, very first flight uh, on December the 17th. Um, one thing that always impresses me about this picture is the enormous amount of anhedral. Um, having that, of course, the flyer was basically unstable, and therefore it must have required very efficient lateral control. But equally, of course, the Wrights, having been bicycle manufacturers, were well-versed in the control of a basically unstable machine. <laughs> uh, there's also a story of aeroelastic failure before powered flight. In the summer of 1903, Samuel Langley, who was secretary of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, catapulted a powered flying machine from a houseboat on the Potomac River, but it at once ditched. It was recovered and repaired, and a second time, on December the 8th, 1903, that's nine days before the Wright's historic flight, it was similarly launched, but it immediately broke up in the air. This is a, a photograph of the actual breakup, and you will see that uh, one of the planes is already gone, and the other is already uh, twisting badly and uh, is in process of failure. Pritchard recounts how, some years later, and after Langley's death, his successor at the Smithsonian rebuilt the aircraft and flew it successfully at Hammondsport, New York. However, in the rebuilding, the wing was greatly stiffened by modified trussing, so that aeroelastic failure was avoided. It seems, therefore, that but for aeroelasticity, Langley might have displaced the Wright brothers from their place in history. I want now just to refer to one other major achievement um, beside the Wright brothers' flight. This was Bryan's 1906 theory of the stability of a rigid aeroplane. This may quite properly be regarded as an aeroelastic study in which the aircraft stiffness happens to be infinite, so that only the interplay of aerodynamic and inertia forces is involved. Brian's studies, based on the use of Routh's criteria, have provided the foundation on which most of the aeroelastic investigations of succeeding years have been based. So I come to the decade starting in 1910, which I call the decade of the First World War. Many of the accidents of the early years of flying may well have been due to unrecognized aeroelastic troubles. Certainly, there were a number of occurrences of wing failure under download, and these were considered in a remarkably perceptive short article by Griffith Brewer in the journal Flight, dated 11th of January 1913. This is the whole of the uh, article. Uh, it's called The Collapse of Monoplane Wings. I don't expect you to be able to read it, um, although it's pretty nice and clear here, but I'll pick out one or two bits uh, from it. It says, Accidents in which the wings break downwards continue to occur. It comments that the greater the span, the more readily will the wingtips be twisted. And it points out that the Wright brothers' experiments showed that the center of pressure traveled backwards as the speed of the plane increased. Putting these ideas together, Griffith Brewer discussed what will happen to a monoplane wing with bracing stays. He seems to accept that there will inevitably be slack in the bracing. To paraphrase his argument, in normal flight, the upper stays will be slack and the center of pressure will lie between the attachment points of the lower stays, both of which, of course, will be taut. But if the speed is increased so far 
that the center of pressure moves behind the attachment point of the rear stay, catastrophe will result. In Griffith Brewer's own words uh, there, the ends of the wings flip over, taking up the slack suddenly. This does, of course, presuppose small intrinsic wing stiffness, but this was almost always the case. So we come to the First World War, with its immense impetus to aviation. During the war, there was one recorded story of the occurrence of wing divergence, which was basically the phenomenon discussed by Griffith Brewer. Fokker, in his book The Flying Dutchman, relates that there were several cases of wing failure on the Fokker D-8, an unbraced high-wing monoplane. This is a, a picture of it. An accident investigation was put in hand, which required check strength tests to be done. These showed that the wing was amply strong enough to withstand the expected loads. However, during the tests, Fokker himself observed that as the load was progressively applied, so the wing twisted, and he realized that the load being applied was therefore quite unrepresentative of what would be the actual air load distribution. Curative measures were then obvious. Much more spectacular, however, was the appearance of the first recorded and documented case of flutter in an aircraft. During a flight in 1916, the Handley Page 0400 bomber suffered a violent tail oscillation in which the fuselage twisted through very large angles. Plus or minus 45 degrees was reported, with the elevators flapping anti-symmetrically. At first... Flush, that sounds an, uh, an absolutely enormous um, angle. But as you can see, the fuselage tapers very rapidly and is very slender at the tail end. And since it's a, just a space framework covered with uh, fabric, um, the plus or minus 45, I think, is uh, perhaps um, just about admissible before uh, failure. It didn't fail, in fact. It came down uh, successfully. It had a box tail with upper and lower elevators connected fairly rigidly, but with no connection from port to starboard except through long separate cable runs up to the stick. F.W. Lanchester was called in to advise on this, and his conclusions and recommendations are recorded by the, what is now the Aeronautical Research Council, in R&M 276 Part 1. That's uh, F.W. Lanchester... Uh, a very remarkable man indeed, very great um, scientist. One of his recommendations was that the port and starboard elevators should be connected by a 14-gauge, 2.5-inch diameter steel tube. And such a stiff connection soon became a design feature and ultimately a design requirement. Additionally, the NPL was asked to investigate the occurrence theoretically, and this was done by Bersto and Fage, whose work is recorded in part two of R&M 276. This is um, Leonard Bairstow, uh, Sir Leonard Bairstow as he uh, became in due course. I'm sorry that I don't have a, a photograph of Fage, who died only a few weeks ago. This first flutter investigation, though it's erroneous in some respects, indicated that instability was possible and supported Lanchester's recommendation, which in effect removed the degree of freedom in antisymmetric elevator movement. Coincidentally, a similar case of flutter occurred in 1917 on the de Havilland DH-9 and was similarly treated. Undoubtedly, there must have been many more occurrences, often catastrophic, 
of aeroelastic troubles during this period. But with the state of the art in its earliest stages, they were unrecognized and unrecorded. During the 1920s, which I have called the Flutter Decade, aeroelastic research began to blossom on an international scale. However, before I describe some of the work which was done, I'd like to take a brief look at some of the tools which were available to the research workers faced with the problem. On the theoretical side, there was first of all Brian's theory of the stability of a rigid aeroplane, which was extended by Bersto and Naylor. I'm very sorry that Mr. Naylor can't be here this evening. Um, His son is here. Tells me that um, Naylor has a cold, but I believe he's... uh, uh, an inveterate uh, attender at historical group meetings. And he is, of course, a very old friend of mine. Uh, Bersto and Naylor had extended Brian's theory to nine degrees of freedom by including the three control surface motions. Secondly, there was the idea of aerodynamic derivatives. Thirdly, aerodynamic strip theory. Fourthly, the classical theory of elasticity. And fifthly, Rayleigh's studies of mechanical vibration. On the experimental and practical side, there was a variety of low-speed wind tunnels, um, workshop staff who were skilled in model making, and finally, there were mechanical hand desk calculating machines. They were commonly known as rabbits because they multiplied quickly. (laughs) But it's one thing to have these tools, it's quite another to know which to use and how to use them. As I've said, wing aileron flutter occurred fairly widely. The first recorded treatment seems to have been that of von Baumhauer and Koenig in 1923. They discussed a rigid rolling wing, elastically restrained, and a flapping aileron. Their work suggested the advantages of mass balance. In the United Kingdom, the problem was sparked by wing aileron flutter on both the Grebe and the Gamecock, and it was first discussed by the Accident Investigation Subcommittee of the ARC who recommended that the vibration of aircraft structures should be thoroughly studied. Studies were therefore put in hand both at the RAE and at the NPL. In 1925, this was. At the RAE, Gates made a brave attempt to solve the problem of the flexure torsional oscillations in a wind of an elastic wing deriving its stiffness from two bending spars. That's uh, Barry Gates, uh, an old friend of many of those here, I'm sure. This was really an impossible approach. The analysis resulted in simultaneous integral differential equations of great complexity. Nevertheless, Gates was able to make deductions about possible types of instability and about the relative importance of parameters involved. At the NPL, work was initiated in 1925 by R.A. Fraser, That's um, Robert Alexander Fraser, a very old friend and colleague of mine, and a very great man. And he was joined in the following year by W.J. Duncan. I can say the same things about um, Wally Duncan. Two years later, in August 1928, they published a monograph, The Flutter of Aeroplane Wings, which was number 1155 in the Reports and Memoranda series of the ARC. This slim volume of just over 200 pages has been known ever since as the Flutter Bible, and understandably so. I have just reread it. It is quite astonishing in its completeness. 
Fraser and Duncan solved the flutter problem in all its essentials, laying down the principles on which flutter investigations have been based ever since. They proposed the semi-rigid device. They offered a series of test determinants to replace the much more cumbersome Rath criteria. They studied the energy balance, including the dissipation function, looked at dimensional questions, and proposed graphical methods of solution which brought out clearly the effects of parametric changes. On the practical side, they recorded a long and painstaking series of experiments, both on flutter in a wind tunnel and on the determination of the aerodynamic derivatives needed for their theoretical study. Eighteen different derivatives in their ternary problem. They also measured the elastic terms and the moments and products of inertia. Finally, they listed preventive measures covering almost every possible kind of instability. All this in less than three years. I must say a word about the semi-rigid principle. Incidentally, quasi-elastic would have been a very much better description, but I don't want to cavil. Since this was probably the most important single step they made, an elastic wing can distort in an, in, in an infinity of ways and the varying aerodynamic loads produce corresponding distortions. Strictly, therefore, recourse must be had to differential equations in space variables as well as time. But as Gates found, even an idealized wing then provides an intractable problem and any real wing would be quite impossible to treat. A semi-rigid wing, however, has only a limited number of possible modes of distortion. In the simplest case, only one. <coughs> I like to imagine such a wing as being constrained by some mechanism, uh, similar to lazy tongs, or a gear train, the sort, of course, that never has any mass or uh, anything else except a constraining force. This mechanism constrains the wing always to distort in the same mode. The only unknown, then, is the amplitude, which can be measured at any convenient spot. All forces can be integrated and related to this single unknown, described as a coordinate, and the equations of motion then relate to the coordinate and its time differentials only. Fraser and Duncan introduced this concept almost casually. If I may quote from RNM 1155, the problem is still too complicated for an exact discussion, and approximate methods must be used. It will be assumed that the changes of mode with wind speed are of secondary importance. This procedure is virtually equivalent to the substitution for the real wing of a fictitious semi-rigid one. And then they just go on to discuss the, um, the things that flow from this. In passing, it may be noted that Duncan, writing some years later, says that the semi-rigid idea was first used by Rayleigh, but I think this does Fraser and Duncan himself less than justice. Rayleigh, in discussing the free vibrations of a conservative system, first proved the stationary property of the frequency of a normal mode, and deduced that an approximate mode might be used in practice. Fraser and Duncan's problem was a vastly more complicated one than studying the vibrations of a conservative system for which no such theorem could be deduced, nor were they at that time concerned with normal modes and natural frequencies. In my view, therefore, their use of the semi-rigid concept was a stroke of genius, which has been amply justified by the work of aeroelasticians over the years which have followed. Well, that brings me to the end of the 1920s, 
and to uh, the 1930s, of which I can speak with uh, personal experience, because I joined Fraser and Duncan in January 1930 to help with the work on tail flutter, which had been occupying their attention for the previous year. I've called it the Decade of Theoretical Advance. This is in the written paper. Uh, since it saw the diversification of aeroelastic studies in various directions, but also saw the emergence of studies of frequency-dependent aerodynamic derivatives, indeed the beginnings of general unsteady motion theory, and the first practical use of the hitherto recondite branch of pure mathematics, known as matrices. The beginning of the decade marked a major change in aircraft design, the disappearance of the biplane in favour of the monoplane, the device of stress-skin structure by which the doped fabric, uh, fabric of the past were replaced by load-bearing skins made the unbraced cantilever monoplane wing with its vastly better drag characteristics a real competitor to the biplane, so much so that it was adopted almost universally for new designs. We begin with a look at the phenomenon of aileron reversal or more fully, loss and reversal of aileron control. This was a subject that came to the attention of Roxby Cox and Pugsley at the RAE. Roxby Cox had gone from Cardington to Farnborough about the beginning of 1930, and Pugsley followed him shortly after. The reversal story that awaited them had begun a few years earlier. Tests of the new Bristol bag shot in 1927 had shown that, as its speed was increased, the aileron power progressively reduced to zero and then became negative. The phenomenon was not catastrophic, but was clearly very dangerous. It has been described graphically to me by the late Cyril Ewins, who flew the bagshot, and of course who was for many years treasurer of this society, and by uh, Russell, Sir Archibald Russell as he now is, who observed it from the rear gunner's cockpit. The Air Ministry decided to retain the bagshot for experimental investigation of its structural stiffness. However, a quantitative explanation of reversal had to await the arrival of Pugsley. He pointed out that the upload generated by a downgoing aileron acted towards the rear of the wing section and so produced nose-down twist and a corresponding download. Or alternatively, that the downgoing aileron effectively increased the section camber with a corresponding increase in nose-down pitching moment. Roxby Cox, meanwhile, had recognized that aeroelastic phenomena on a wing all resulted from changes of incidence, which in turn determined the wing, were determined by the wing torsional stiffness. Accordingly, he began a statistical study of the wing torsional stiffness of aircraft in an effectively dimensionless form. This study provided the extremely valuable wing stiffness criterion, which thereafter played such a valuable part in aircraft design. Together, Roxby Cox and Pugsley were able to lay down quite precise requirements for the wing stiffness necessary to avoid aileron reversal troubles. Uh, to continue with the RAA story for a while, I must record that the establishment's contributions were wide-ranging and valuable. They were in large measure masterminded by Pugsley. He was the first to study the effect of wing density on flutter, though its importance had been noted in the Flutter Bible. He was the first to point out that the longitudinal stability of aircraft could be affected by wing flexibility. He studied wing divergence as a phenomenon in his own right. 
He made parametric studies of flutter and also postulated a simplified theory of flutter. Finally, in an investigation of the nonlinear characteristics of the extremely popular freeze aileron, he pointed out the importance of control circuit stiffness. All this in addition to the structural studies which were his first and enduring concern. If I may now return to the work of the NPL group, I'm going to begin by reference to a new phenomenon, tail buffeting. In July 1930, a Junkers F-13 monoplane flying over Mepham in Kent entered a cloud and broke up. The accident investigation which followed examined a wide range of possible causes and concluded that it must have been due to oscillations induced on the tail by eddies shed from the wing at high incidence. Again, Fraser and Duncan led this investigation. Incidentally, such was the variety of phenomena calling for investigation at this period that Fraser, Duncan and I rarely worked as a group, but in pairs. Fraser and Duncan, Fraser with myself, or Duncan with myself. Later, we were reinforced by the arrival of Scruton, W.P. Jones and others. That includes Mr. Miles, who I saw outside a, a, a little while earlier. On the other hand, Duncan was appointed in 1934 to the Chair of Aeronautics in University College Hull, and collaboration thereafter was much more difficult. I've already said that I began flutter work in collaboration with Duncan in January 1930. We were investigating rudder flutter on the Parnell Pipit biplane. The investigation required some careful experiments in a model of the aeroplane in a wind tunnel to find the derivatives for use in a theoretical investigation. But the outcome was a very simple one. The firm had mounted a quite heavy tail lamp on the trailing edge of the rudder at the location where it was most effective as an anti-mass balance weight, and so it had promoted flutter in an otherwise stable system. Within two years, I was again working with Duncan on three problems which, although apparently very different, were nevertheless related. Air-screw flutter, matrix analysis, and frequency-dependent derivatives. Flutter of air-screws was the latest aeroelastic trouble. It followed the introduction of metal blades in the search for greater efficiency. The work done by Duncan and myself was both experimental and theoretical. For the experiments, we used model blades of reduced elasticity. They consisted of a spine of stripped steel carrying wooden ribs, the whole covered in doped fabric. To view the blade oscillation, Duncan devised a most ingenious optical system. At the airscrew hub, he placed a step-down gearbox which rotated a mirror at half the airscrew rotational speed. The plane of the mirror contained the axis of rotation. This produced, for about half a mirror revolution, an unrotating image of an oscillating blade. This image, in turn, was viewed through a stroboscope to make the oscillations apparently very slow. In this way, it was possible to make visual observations of high-frequency flutter at high speeds of rotation, and so to deduce the nature of the flutter and the modes and relative amplitudes involved for various conditions and blade parameters. The theoretical investigations were pursued along the lines of wing flexure torsion flutter, but there were two stumbling blocks. First, what were the modes of vibration in flexure and torsion of these very unwing-like blades? 
with our high aspect ratio and rapid span-wise variation of cord, thickness and mass. Secondly, these blades fluttered at very high frequency. What effect did this have on the relevant aerodynamics? We attacked the latter problem first. Following the work of Wagner on the growth of circulation around an aerofoil due to an impulsive change of incidence, Glauert had examined the circulation growth on an aerofoil with a constant velocity and pitch, and had then, in 1929, solved the corresponding problem of an aerofoil oscillating with a single degree of freedom in pitch. He showed that the aerodynamic properties depended on what is now called the frequency parameter, or in America the reduced frequency and he tabulated the functions needed for numerical application. For the flutter problem, Duncan and I extended Gowart's work to take account of pitch and vertical translation, or heave, simultaneously. We deduced both the direct and cross acceleration, velocity, and displacement derivatives for both motions, 12 derivatives in all. They were expressed as functions of Gowart's frequency parameter. Additionally, we obtained and tabulated the derivatives for a simple divergence and formally solved the problem of exponentially increasing oscillations. This work was published in October 1932 in RNM 1500. Two months later, we had applied the results to the Escrow-Flutter problem and our results for this are recorded in RNM 1518, dated December 1932. However, we entitled it the present position of the investigation of airscrew flutter, since we had only been able to deal with blades of uniform section. Real shapes needed the help of matrix analysis, of which I shall speak shortly. It is, however, convenient to mention here the early work of Thea Dawson in America on oscillating air forces. This work was published in 1935, three years after the period I'm discussing. It contained two main advances on the British work. It added a third degree of freedom, an oscillating control surface, and it recognized Glauert's functions of frequency parameter as Henkel functions, which are fully tabulated in the literature of mathematical functions. Even Glauert had failed to notice this. Well, now to return to the subject of matrices. Fraser had studied matrices as a branch of pure mathematics under Grace at Cambridge and he recognized that the statement of, for example, a ternary flutter problem in terms of matrices was very neat and compendious. Fraser, however, who was really a mathematician, was much more concerned with formal manipulation and transformation to other coordinates than with numerical results. On the other hand, Duncan and I were in search of numerical results for the vibration characteristics of airscrew blades and we recognized that we could only advance by breaking the blade into, say, ten segments and treating it as having ten degrees of freedom. This approach also was most conveniently formulated in matrix form and readily expressed numerically. And then, and here I really don't remember the details, but I think it was perhaps resulting from the notion of semi-rigidity, we found that if we put an approximate mode into one side of our equation, we calculated a better approximation on the other side, and so the matrix iteration procedure was born. We published our method in two papers in Phil Mag, one dealing with conservative systems in 1934, and the second treating damp systems in 1935. Uh, by this time, of course, uh, Duncan had gone to his chair at Hull. 
I'll complete the Matrix story as briefly as possible. Fraser and I collaborated in the next year or so in producing three or four more papers on matrices, including one on the effect of solid friction on flutter. These were presented to the ARC, which was somewhat perplexed as to how they should be published. Vehicles such as the R&M series or Film Mag were not thought suitable for description of these new techniques. Southwell then suggested that the authors of the various papers should be asked to incorporate them in a book, and this was agreed. This is uh, R.V. Southwell, Big uh, Southwell of uh, relaxation frame. The result was the appearance in November 1938 of Elementary Matrices, published by Cambridge University Press. It was the first book to treat matrices as a branch of applied mathematics. It has been reprinted many times and translated into several languages, and even now, after nearly 40 years, still sells in hundreds of copies a year, mostly paperback. The interesting thing is that the authors did not regard it as particularly good, it was the book we were being, we had been instructed to write, rather than the one we would have liked to write. But that's just one of those things. To go back to the NPL work, while Duncan and I were otherwise engaged, Fraser, with Scruton, was dealing with a serious occurrence of flutter on the Pussmoth aeroplane. The aileron of this aircraft had been mass balanced by offset weights under the wing, and flutter should have been impossible. However, the wing was stayed by staggered V struts, and if a bending lobe was applied, cordwise movement was induced by the struts as well as bending. These cordwise movements promoted aileron rotation because of the mass balance offset, and so produced flutter. But it was a long job to find this out. Later, Fraser and W.P. Jones investigated a practical method of flight flutter testing proposed by von Schlipper in Germany and W.P. Jones himself began his long and valuable researches into flutter aerodynamics. Before he went to Hull, Duncan and I collaborated in treating yet another form of flutter. It involved the servo tabs fitted to rudders. There had been several cases of this trouble, beginning, I believe, with the Bolton Pole side strand and overstrand. We dealt with a case of an aircraft, which we refer to in our report as Aeroplane X, and in my script I've written, I've forgotten what it was. But oddly enough, it came to me in the train coming up this evening. It was the Gloucester Troop Carrier. This was in 1933. Tab flutter was to remain a problem for many years. Finally, a reference to one other development. It was clear that as aviation expanded, flutter would involve an increasing number of degrees of freedom. But the difficulty of the classical flutter solution increased roughly as the factorial of the number of degrees of freedom. Since in those days a binary calculation took about a month and a ternary took three months, six degrees of freedom would require 30 years. It occurred to me that an inverse method could circumvent this virtually impossible procedure. Instead of working throughout with an unknown speed and frequency and in fact in a formal treatment of a problem in six degrees of freedom, you would have to solve 729 determinants, each of course having uh, 36 um, elements, all of them functions of speed and frequency. 
and then you'd have to manipulate them after you had evaluated them. So 30 years is perhaps not uh, all that out of the way. Instead of working throughout with an unknown speed and frequency, prescribe them from the beginning with some values near the critical. These could be estimated from a simplified binary approach. However, since the values would not be exact, it would be necessary to imagine the imposition of an externally applied force oscillating at the prescribed frequency to maintain the sinusoidal oscillations. But with all the coefficients now fixed numbers, the evaluation of this force was simply a case of solving a set of, lin a set of linear algebraic equations. By repeating the calculations, first with speed varied and then with frequency, it would be possible to determine values for which the externally applied force vanished, i.e. the critical values. Uh, in retrospect, it occurs to me that this idea might have been sparked by von Schlipper's proposals for flight flutter testing, which involved imposing an oscillating force on an aircraft in flight and studying the sinusoidal response at varying speeds and frequencies. Uh, this, of course, is a technique that has been used in recent years, but was proposed by von Schlipper in the middle 1930s. Anyhow, Duncan saw at once that by this means we could accomplish various objectives, including checking the validity of the semi-rigid principle and finishing our study of airscrew flutter. He undertook all the work with the aid of Miss H.M. Lyon, who was then living near Hull, so that communication between them was easy. The results of this work were published in 1936. And so that brings me to the end of the, uh, that particular decade and to the fifth decade, um, beginning in the 1940s. Now, of course, at this time, the Second World War had been in progress for about four months, beginning of the 1940s, and there had been major changes in the aeroelastic sea. Fraser was required to undertake other work. Duncan left Hull to go first to Farnborough, then to Exeter, then back to Farnborough, but he did no flutter work. Broxby Cox was in Whitehall, and Pugsley had become head of the SME department at Farnborough. I was translated from Teddington to Farnborough to look after its aeroelastic work. From this time on, the NPL concentrated very largely on its immensely valuable but protracted work on unsteady aerodynamics. However, they did conduct one or two flutter investigations. Fraser lent a hand whenever he could. In particular, he made an early study of Posio's derivative theory with compressibility effects at subsonic speeds included. The team which worked on aerodynamic derivatives included, as well as Fraser himself, W.P. Jones, Scruton, Bratt, and Lamborn. In addition, since the REE had no wind tunnels available for aeroelastic problems, the NPL group undertook model experiments to provide necessary data for some of the REE investigations. The Farnborough work was, naturally, concerned mostly with the problems of actual aircraft, with the urgency of a war situation always pressing. By the end of the war, I had a powerful team, including Broadbent, pleased to see her tonight, Miss Puttick, now Mrs. Broadbent, I'm sorry she's not here tonight, uh, Miss Victory, um, now the, uh, the wife of the former president of this uh, society, Frank Grinstead, Molyneux, Fisdon, Minhinick, Yarn, Buxton and Sharp, while Professor Temple undertook two important specific investigations. Our work inter alia 
involved field investigations, including accidents, laboratory work on full-scale aircraft and components, theoretical studies, and design requirements. The number of problems calling for troubleshooting which came our way was legion, so much so that I cannot possibly mention them all. But before I describe some of them, I must mention two factors which brought complication with them. The first was the advent of the jet engine, which not only offered higher speeds, but also presented a particular problem in that, in the meteor, it was buried in the wing, whereas conventional engines were nacelle-mounted well forward of the wing. The second was the increasing importance of compressibility effects. Now to some of the problems, which I will arrange loosely under four heads. First, vibration. We were much plagued by cases of airframe vibration, usually induced by the engines or propellers. These involved a lot of work, but our efforts were rarely more than partially successful. We regularly made resonance tests of aircraft over a wide frequency range to determine both vibration characteristics and modes appropriate to flutter. Often we made stiffness measurements also on a multiplicity of components. Originally the techniques, so ingenious, were very crude, and progressively, by devising new sensors and actuators, and Fijdon and Molyneux were very much involved in this, we improved our methods and results greatly. A problem having something in common with flutter was posed by nose wheel shimmy, a large angle oscillation maintained by tire frictional forces. This problem was neatly and expeditiously explained by Temple. My next heading is quasi-static problems. One of the first new problems in this field was that of loss and reversal of elevator control due to tailplane and fuselage flexibility. It was prompted by troubles on two wooden aircraft being developed at the time, this was 1942, and was attacked by Grinstead and myself. It was soon apparent that the phenomenon was an aspect of the longitudinal static stability of an aircraft, and an important one. There was a fatal accident resulting from it. The investigation pointed the need for standards of structural stiffness for tailplanes, elevators, and fuselages, and these were introduced in due course, indeed, fairly soon afterwards. I remarked earlier that Pugsley had shown the need for standards of aileron circuit stiffness. Despite his work, there were many examples of aileron snatch and overbalance, particularly on the Spitfire, and this was due to upfloat. A field study showed that there were very big variations in the effective stiffness, resulting from lack of pretension. We found tensions on the Spitfire cables varying from 3 to 150 pounds. A brief reference here to a French proposal which came our way for assessment, the Rouen Array hinged wing. The proposed wings had hinges with skewed axes, the axes intersecting in the rear fuselage. Movement would be constrained by stiff springs. Thus it was another proposal for the deliberate use of aeroelasticity. Downward bending of a wing produced increased incidence on an upward airload. Rolling was to be achieved by differential elevator control. A rolling moment applied to the fuselage at the tail caused the wings to lag and so to produce their own rolling moment without the need for ailerons, a kind of automatic wing warping. Additionally, up gusts would cause the wings to flex and shed load. 
a heavy landing would induce additional lift. It was an ingenious proposal, but the practical difficulties of the hinge design and the spring constraint precluded further work. Loss and reversal of aileron control assumed increasing importance as speeds rose. Broadbent and I devised an analysis of the rolling power of an elastic as distinct from a semi-rigid wing. It was an iterative method of solution of the integral equations. It was also well suited to the introduction of compressibility effects in the aerodynamic forces involved. My third general heading is flutter, and this continued to occupy much of our time. One perpetual problem was tab flutter, which was something of a plague. Trim and geared tabs with backlash were very prone to flutter, while spring tabs with various gearings, shapes and sizes were growing in popularity. The early work on this topic was done by Fraser and W.P. Jones at the NPL. They showed that the length of a tab mass balance arm must be strictly limited. Sharp and I at RAE extended this to show that the balance mass must lie within a limiting circle, a result implicit in the NPL work and it's easy to show geometrically that this is so. And here I'm just going to interrupt myself because um, it was only when I was writing this paper about a fortnight ago and looking at this diagram that I realized that you can establish this um, property very quickly um, by just looking at a diagram like this. Um, In order to avoid flutter, you've got to avoid elastic um, cross-stiffnesses. And that means if you move the um, the uh, tab, you mustn't um, get a moment uh, on the main surface, the, the main control surface. And that means that you mustn't move that control circuit spring there. You've got to keep the uh, link BE. I'm sorry, they should be hinges there at B and there at C. Um, I thought they were marked as hinges. They're not. Never mind. If you can imagine that the control surface is hinged at B in the tab at C. Um, And then imagine a movement when that point is held fixed. The tab, in fact, then rotates about that point. Um, It's fairly easy to see that this must be the case because this is all tab. And that point is moving at right angles to that line. And this point uh, is moving at right angles to that line. And therefore, they must be moving about that point there. Now, if you put... um, a circle round there, and take any point on the circle and put a mass balance weight on it, it's part of the tab, and therefore it will be rotating about that point. And this being a circle, a right angle there means that the the balance weight is actually moving on a line through the tab hinge. And therefore, if you accelerate the thing and produce an inertia force, the force actually goes through that point and has no moment and therefore there is no contribution to the product of inertia. End of proof. Um. <coughs> but not end of the stick, which took a bit of getting rid of. Um. Unfortunately, before this work was widely known, there was a fatal accident. A meteor with experimental aileron spring tabs was being flown from Gloucester's aerodrome at Morton Valance by their chief test pilot. It crashed and was virtually pulverized. Since a witness had said that the uh, wings and ailerons were waving about, I was called in and conducted what what must have been the shortest accident inquiry on record. I was taken to a hangar 
where most of the pieces had been thrown into a heap, but the firm had sorted out a few pieces of the ailerons. I picked up one piece, a wedge of metal on a steel bar, and asked what it was. The tab mass balance weight, I was told. I said at once, no need to look further, it's an anti-mass balance weight promoting flutter. The arm was, in fact, far too long. It was probably uh, at least half as long again as the, uh, the diameter of that circle. It was necessary to give a good deal of attention to mass balancing, but I'm going to refer to one other aspect only, an example of remote mass balancing. Several aircraft of a new fighter type crashed, I think it was 11 actually, after detachment of the whole tail unit in flight, and none of the pilots survived. They were in fact all killed um, in coming out of the aeroplane, which of course, at high speed, having lost its tail, did a, a most terrific bunt. Tests showed strength to be more than adequate for normal loads, so we had to postulate an abnormal load such as that due to flutter. Resonance tests were revealing. There was a node in the fuselage near the tail at the second resonant frequency, and that was only just above the first resonant frequency. And the elevator was statically balanced by a mass attached to the control circuit two or three feet forward of the elevator hinge and near the node. Accordingly, in this mode, all the mass was doing was to increase the elevator inertia. Calculations by Jan Buxton and Minhinik Predictive flutter near the top speed of the aircraft. Remedial measures stopped the accidents. At a fairly early stage in its history, we put in hand calculations, I think in four degrees of freedom, of possible wing flutter on the meteor. We also asked the MPL to conduct some fairly extensive wind tunnel tests, which were made by Lamborn. There is a useful film of his results in existence. Fortunately, both theory and experiment showed that buried engines offered no great hazard. Finally, as we accumulated information on wing flutter, we realized that the simple wing stiffness criterion originally proposed by Roxby Cox could be unnecessarily demanding, and that there was a good case for its elaboration to take account of variations in some of the wing, para of the wing parameters affecting flutter. The new criterion was developed by Broadbent, uh, Miss Puttick and myself. And my last head is theoretical investigations. In 1943, the chief technician of Miles Aircraft appeared in my office to tell me in the greatest secrecy that his firm had been asked by the ministry to build an experimental supersonic aircraft. It was to have straight wings of lenticular section with a thickness chord ratio of 4%. He said he must know within three weeks how stiff it had to be. Since we had no knowledge whatever of supersonic aerodynamic derivatives, this was something of a proposition. However, within the specified time limit, I had personally extended Accurate's theory to provide the derivatives needed for aileron reversal, and by an assumption equivalent to what was subsequently called piston theory, had evolved a complete set of flexure-torsion flutter derivatives which were correct for high Mark number. They were wrong at lower Mark numbers. And I'd specified the required stiffness. Alas, the aircraft was, for other reasons, never built. Since my analysis was rough and ready in the extreme, I also asked Temple and Yarn to do a proper job. They did so, but it occupied two years. Uh, towards the end of the war, 
we became aware that experiments were being made in Germany on sweetback as a device for avoiding compressibility effects. And we began studies of the implications of this for aeroelasticians, studies which were to persist for some years. As opportunity offered and experience grew, we also developed a variety of theorems on matrices and contributed to thinking about semi-rigidity by establishing the stationary property of critical divergence speed with respect to mode variations. I left Farnborough in 1946 to take up my chair at Bristol, where Pugsley was already Professor of Civil Engineering. Many other members of the aeroelastic team also went to other work. The NPL team similarly changed direction. Fraser's group was asked to study the aeroelastics of a proposed Severn Bridge. Duncan had new duties at Cranfield. At Farnborough, there was a major job of tying up loose ends left by the war and of reorientation for a future involving compressibility and sweepback, which occupied much of the rest of the decade. I shall conclude, therefore, with a reference to one other piece of my own work. At Farnborough, I had been privileged to be in charge of work on the widest possible spectrum of aeroelastic phenomena, and it had been borne in, in on me that these hitherto discrete studies were really all part and parcel of the stability and control of a flexible aeroplane. I put these ideas together in a paper to the Royal Aeronautical Society, and by way of simple illustration, included a diagram of what I called the Triangle of Forces, aerodynamic, elastic, and inertia forces. This diagram, which shows many of the aeroelastic phenomena and their relation to each other, uh, had a reception which was more than gratifying. Clearly, the idea of a unified treatment was widely acceptable. I'll quote only one comment, that of I.E. Garrick of America, who'd worked with Theodorson. It's both a chart and a compass for aeroelasticians. And so to my conclusion, I'm well aware that history should be objective and that my talk has been highly subjective and personal. I've given hardly more than a mention to overseas work, though this is in part due to the fact that the majority of aeroelastic work in the first 50 years was done in this country. I have also stressed quite unduly work with which I was personally associated. But I thought you would rather hear a talk based on personal experience even if it can at best be described as a biased look at history.